Well, amen. Thank you, Miss April. And you know, one of the things I think that is a mark of a mature believer is whenever we can get to the place that we praise the Lord no matter what the circumstances are. Whether we think they're good or whether they seem bad, we trust Him in those situations in our life. And so if you have your Bibles with you today, will you follow me once again to Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8, as we continue our journey through the book of Romans, we kind of camped out and pulled the car off the side of the road and, and sat for a little while on uh, this, these last two verses, 28, or 29 and 30. Uh, today, we will, be, we will be done with 29 and 30, and we'll move on into the last section of this uh, glorious part of Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 28 through 30 as our text uh, today. The Bible says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again this day, and we thank you, Lord, for your overwhelming grace. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for your love that you have shed abroad in our hearts. We thank you that in spite of our sinfulness, that you loved us still, that you sent your only begotten son to walk among us, to live among us, to die in our place on the cross of Calvary, that we may be reconciled to you. And I pray, Father, if there's one in this place today who has not come to that place of saving faith in Jesus Christ, that you will draw them today, that you will call them today, and that they will come to faith in Christ. We pray, Father, as we engage your word this morning, that you will help us to hear the truth of it, that that truth will change our lives, it will change the way we think and the way we live in light of the truth that we hear. And as always, Lord, we ask that you would use this vessel to bring glory and honor to your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, just by way of reminder, because for me, every Sunday, it seems like it's been a month since I've been back here in the pulpit, right? So I have to remind myself where we've come from and, re and remind you of where we come from, because in studying the scripture, in particular in epistles like this, uh, Paul is making an argument. He's unfolding that argument for us. So we've got to always have in our minds what it is that Paul has been leading us toward. And the only way to do that is to constantly remind ourselves of where we came from and where we are headed. And if you remember, the immediate context really comes from chapter 7, where Paul at the end of chapter 7 reminds us about this great battle that goes on between the spirit and the flesh. And he talks about this, this war that goes on, this law that he finds that with the inner man, we follow after the law of the Lord. And with the flesh, we follow after the law of sin. And then he makes this declaration, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. And ultimately, the one who will deliver him is God himself. 
And then Paul, I think, the occasion for chapter 8, verse 1, and maybe all of chapter 8, is coming from what he just said in chapter 7, in, in giving us some hope. Because if we leave chapter 7, we say, man, how in the world are we going to make it with this battle that we have waging within us with, between the spirit and the flesh? And Paul tempers that distress that we may feel with that quote or that statement he makes in chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we talked about what that means, the present aspect of it. Right now in this moment, if you are in Christ, you are not condemned. There's nothing that can change that. And that verse, I think, ultimately out of all of that flows what Paul has given us in chapter 8, where the Holy Spirit comes into our life as our guarantee, as the one who, who bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, the one who helps us in those times of struggle and distress in our life. And that leads him to talk about this issue of suffering and, and how that the Spirit helps us even in the midst of that suffering. And then that led him to verse 28. Out of all of that concept came this idea that all things work together for those who love Christ and are called according to his purpose. And so the question is, how can Paul make that kind of statement? How can he say that in the midst of this struggle, in the midst of the stress of life, that all things work together for those who love God and those who are the called according to his purpose? And I believe verses 29 and 30 answer that question. And from that, he leads into what's going to be a great doxology at the end of this chapter. And so we've already learned that the reason Paul can say that these things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Look in verse 29, we already, he gave, he gives us an explanatory statement. This is the reason why for, and then we learn five words in this golden chain of redemption, right? We've already dealt with the first three of those five words for those whom he foreknew. And the contention I think of scripture is those whom God knew beforehand, this people that he knew beforehand, look what he has done for those whom he foreknew, he predestined them. And in his predestining, he has predestined, he has determined beforehand that those who come to faith in Christ, the ones we'll talk about in the moment he called, that those ones will be conformed to the image of Christ. So while we have this struggle in our life with the inner man, we follow after the things of God with the flesh. It still wants to follow after sinfulness. What Paul is trying to help us understand is that even though we feel the tension in the struggle that God has already predetermined that we will overcome this struggle and we will be conformed to the image of Christ. Right now, we're in progressive sanctification, right? God is, that song, God is still working on me, right? He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. What I ought to be is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And God is saying to me in this aorist active indicative that I have already determined and decreed for every person that I foreknew that they will be without a doubt conform to the image of Christ. So we can celebrate that we have overcome in God this battle. Even though we're in the midst of it, there is victory in the end when we stand before God 
at the culmination of the age. And then the third word that we saw in our text was, not only did he foreknow, but he also predestined. And it says these ones that he predestined, he called. And last week we spent the whole hour or the 45, 50 minutes on this issue of those who are being called. And we talked about this idea of an effectual call and an exterior call or an outward call because God calls all of creation, right? Every man, woman, and child in some way is called by God in a general way to the gospel. But there's this overwhelming effectual call that transforms the life of those who believe. And so God has promised the ones he foreknew, the ones he predestined, these are the ones he is calling and he is calling them to salvation. And in this golden chain of redemption, he says there are two other promises that God has made for us. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time at today on these last two words. And so if you're following along in an outline, last week I gave you uh, three points, I think it was. One, the eternal precursor of our redemption, which had to do with the foreknowledge and the predestination. Those are things that God has determined uh, in eternity past with his divine decree. Then the call, although God has declared it from eternity past that he was going to call these people, the call brings us into time and space where God is working out this redemptive plan in Christ Jesus for those who he is calling. And we see uh, at the point number two was God's temporal means of redemption. And that left us with point number three from last week, which is God's eternal result of our redemption. Now, again, we we always have to have in our mind this idea of the already, not yet of the kingdom of God. Already we've seen because of the grammar, and I'll give you some more of that today, that these things God has decreed and declared are past tense. He's already said, this is a done deal, right? Aorist active indicative. It is an act of God in the past that he has decreed will happen. Okay, it's a done deal. But not yet have I fully realized what it means to be justified and glorified. So we have this already not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. And so as we look at this passage, the next word that we come to in this golden chain of redemption, not only has God foreknew, He's also predestined and he's also called and those whom he called, he has justified. Look at verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he has also called and those whom he called, he also justified. And of course, that word is, comes from the word uh, dekaio, which means to justify or to mark out as right to acquit. It's a kind of like a legal term that God has declared those whom he foreknew, predestined and called. He has declared them to be not guilty. Hence verse number one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because God has declared them to be guiltless. Now, how can God arbitrarily declare someone to be guiltless? Because we've already learned in Romans that every single one of us are guilty, right? There's not a human being that's ever been born or that will ever be born that is not guilty before a holy, righteous God. So how can God, this holy, righteous God, arbitrarily declare guilty human beings 
not guilty. Well, he doesn't arbitrarily do it. That's the catch, right? What does he do? If you remember Romans chapter 3, he sent his only begotten son, right? He sent Jesus Christ. You remember that, that uh, $5 word in the midst of Romans chapter 3, that word propitiation? God sent his son to be a propitiation for all of us. What does propitiation mean? If you remember, propitiation has to do with Jesus appeasing the wrath of God. I think it has two aspects to it. Some people want to put this dichotomy between the idea of propitiation and expiation, expiation being the covering of our sin. Well, I think Jesus did both, right? He covered our sin with his blood and he appeased God's wrath against sin with his blood when he took it to the Holy of Holies. And all of that is reminiscent of the Old Testament system of sacrifice. What did the high priest do every year on Yom Kippurim, right? Yom Kippur. He went into the Holy of Holies with the sacrificed blood of the unblemished lamb and he offered it on the mercy seat for the atonement of the sins of the people for that year. And we know that as we were in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that, right? And when Jesus, once for all, as the author of Hebrews says, carried his blood into not the earthly temple or tabernacle, but the heavenly throne room of God and offered that blood as an appeasement for God's wrath for sin and an atoning covering for that sin debt that we owe, that guilt that we have, once for all, those who come to faith in Christ, those who find themselves in Jesus are found before God to be not guilty. Why? Not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. It is because of Christ that we can find ourselves to be justified. Listen to what George Ladd says in his commentary on this passage. The root idea in justification is the declaration of God that the righteous judge, that the man who believes in Christ and the woman, the man who believes in Christ, sinful though he may be, is righteous, is viewed as being righteous because in Christ he has come into a righteous relationship with God. And I'll probably have it further down in my notes but my mind always goes to 2 Corinthians 5.21 when we deal with the issue of justification and righteousness because that's the only way it can happen for me. I have been declared by God righteous. We talked about that word. Uh, we mentioned it Wednesday night, Miss Martha, imputation. That's what God has done in this justification. He has taken my sin and it's been imputed to Christ's account. Christ has borne the guilt that I should have borne. And then in exchange through repentance and faith, he takes the righteousness of Christ, this justification that we find in Christ, and he accredits or imputes that to my account. And he declares me to be righteous. And he declares you to be righteous if you find yourself in Jesus Christ. And so we can stand with Paul and rejoice in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 and say, no matter how I feel, no matter what the circumstances are around me, no matter what people are saying about me or to me, if I am in Christ Jesus, I am not condemned. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah right? Because God has declared it so. And we give the Lord the credit for that. 
Now, this justification, the process of it, I've really kind of gotten ahead of myself in the notes, but Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 28 is where we saw that. And we talked about this issue of propitiation. But let me just read that passage of scripture for you and you follow along with me just flip back a few pages to the left and you'll find chapter 3 verses 21 through 28 this is where the lord hammers out for us what the the practical application of this uh saving faith and this justification uh looks like in christ jesus he says but now the righteousness of god has been manifest apart from the law. And that's been Paul's argument from the very beginning of Romans that no man can find himself in a right relationship with God because of the law. The law condemns us. The law shows us that we need a savior. And so he goes on, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, this righteousness of God, verse 22, the righteousness of God, how does it come? It comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe For there is no distinction. And what does he mean by that? There's no distinction between Jew or Gentile. That's been Paul's argument from the very beginning of Romans chapter 1, right? He he loves the gospel. He's not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek or for the Gentile. And so he's saying there's no distinction. Doesn't matter if you're Jewish, doesn't matter if you're Gentile. Everyone must come to God the same way. Everyone has to find righteousness and justification the same way, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 23, why is this? Because whether you're a Jew or Gentile, remember, that's the implication. Whether you're a Jew or Gentile, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the implication is in verse 24, all are likewise justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then here's the passage we alluded to all ago, whom God put forward as a propitiation. And how did he propitiate for our sinfulness? How did he propitiate for the guilt that we bear? By his blood. And who is this appropriated to? It is appropriated to those who receive it by faith, right? Salvation is by faith, not by the works of the law, not by the works of man. It's by faith in what Christ has already done through his propitiatory work in the shedding of his blood on the cross of Calvary. This was to show God's righteousness. You remember, that's one of the reasons that Paul wanted to share the gospel with them, right? Because it showed God's righteousness. How did he show his righteousness? He showed it when he sacrificed his own son on the cross of Calvary. Don't miss this. This is the gospel. The gospel is God demonstrating his righteousness and his love. Demonstrating his righteousness by punishing sin. How did he punish sin? He punished it on his son. The Bible says Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10, it pleased the father to crush him. He crushed his own son under the weight of his wrath, the wrath that you deserve and the wrath that I deserve, showing his righteousness because he must deal with sin and he must deal with the guilt of sin. And he did that in Christ Jesus. And then he demonstrated his love. How did he do that? By making a way for those who would believe in Christ Jesus, who would repent of their sin and place their faith in him and him alone. 
that they can be reconciled to God, though they be guilty. Amazing, right? Amazing grace, amazing love. He shed his love abroad in our heart through Christ Jesus. This was to show his God's righteousness because in his forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And again, I don't need to preach every one of these verses. I'll never get done. But you and I need to thank the Lord that in his forbearance that he is still overlooking the sinfulness of people in this world. You know why? Because every moment that Jesus tarries from coming again is another moment for somebody to have an opportunity to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And every person sitting in this room knows someone who needs to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Every person in this room has a loved one or a friend that needs needs to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so while we do proclaim with John at the end of Revelation, even so come Lord Jesus, we ought to say thank you, Lord, for one more day for someone to get saved. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might, and here's the the, the linchpin, he might be just and the justifier. That's how he could do it. He is just because he punished sin. And because he punished sin in his son, he's made a way to be the justifier of those who would place their faith in Jesus Christ. That's the amazing work of the gospel. That's the amazing work of the cross. That's the amazing work of God in redemption for humanity. He is both just and the justifier of those. And here it is again. There's a group of people that can receive this. That group of people are those who have faith in Jesus Christ. If you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, then you're not part of this group of people. So I'd encourage you today, if, you don't, if you're not for certain that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, don't let the sun go down today. And listen, it's going to go down quicker today because the time changed, right? <laughs> don't let it go down today until you know for certain that you have a relationship with Jesus. If you need to talk with somebody about that, hey, I'm here. Come talk to me. If there's somebody in this congregation who you're more comfortable with, go to that person, talk to them about it. But don't let this day pass. Today is the day of salvation because you're not promised tomorrow. Verse 27 in, in Romans chapter 3, then what becomes of boasting? Well, the, the, the expected answer is nothing. Nothing. I can't boast about anything because it's all of what God did. It is excluded. And then uh, he, he goes on, or he goes on in the passage. But I just want to point out four quick things related to those passages about this issue of justification. And it's things you've already seen in the passage. You'll recognize them when we say them. So, bullet point form: one, justification is apart from the law. There is nothing you can do as far as working your way into heaven. You can't find you can't find justification by working the works of the law. As a matter of fact, you can't work the works of the law without the Holy Spirit in you, redeeming you and sanctifying you. Justification is apart from the law. Justification is by faith in Christ. There's no other way to get to God but through faith in Jesus Christ. If you don't have faith in Christ, you are on the outside looking in and you're destined for eternal damnation. Justification is based on the blood of Christ We are washed in the blood of the Lamb. We'll read about that in Revelation, those whose whose garments have been dipped in the blood of the Lamb. It is by the blood of the Lamb. You remember we talked about this a little bit. The life is in the blood. The the Lord tells them that in, in Leviticus. 
And it's through this life-giving blood that Jesus poured out for us on the cross of Calvary that you and I can find redemption because he has offered that blood on our behalf on the cross of Calvary. And justification is God's free gift. How many times we see this? The gift of God. It's not of works. The only way that you can be made right with God is to place your faith in Christ Jesus and God grants you the gift of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And he imputes to you the justification and the, and the righteousness of Jesus Christ to your behalf. So God has declared for us that we are justified in Christ Jesus. And here's some of the results, three things about the results. And we could probably add more, but three primary results, I think, of this justification. One is the remission of the penalty of sin. We've already read this, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. I don't know how you can get any more plain than that, right? Paul has declared there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've, been, if you've come to faith in Christ Jesus through repentance and faith, there's no condemnation. That's why he can say a little bit later on in this text, next week we'll get there. That's why he can say, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Well, no one can. Why? Because God has declared, a, declared us to be justified. The penalty of sin and death has been removed for you, right? Now, that doesn't mean you won't die physically. You will. But what is death ultimately? In the biblical terms, it's always pointing to the second death. If you read in the book of Revelation, we'll find out in chapter 20. In the book of Revelation, this second death is the lake of fire. It's ultimately cast into the lake of fire where you will suffer for all eternity under the wrath of God in complete separation from the person of God. And you and I need to understand when we come to faith in Christ, that's the only thing that can remove the second death. That's the only thing that can overcome the penalty is to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then secondly, the restoration of God's favor, James chapter 2, verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Man, we've already learned in Romans chapter 8, if your mind is set on the things of the flesh, if you're a person of the flesh and not a person of the Spirit, how do you get the Spirit? The only way you have the Spirit is if you come to faith in, in Jesus Christ, right? That's the only way you get the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit and you're in the flesh, you're a son and daughter of Adam, then you're the enemy of God. There's only two groups of people in this world. You are either a child of God or you're an enemy of God, right? That's the only two groups of people today. We don't like to hear that term about ourselves, right? But everyone who is outside of a proper relationship with Jesus Christ is the enemy of God. They're not a friend of God. They're in rebellion against God. And their only hope is that God would redeem them and save them. And when God does that, guess what? We are transferred from being enemies to God to being friends of God. We are transferred from being at enmity with God to being reconciled with God. We are no longer those who are on the outside of the kingdom of God. We become the family of God. We become the sons and the daughters of God. And that changes the whole dynamic of our eternal outlook, doesn't it? We are the friends of of God, And we're under the favor of God, not because of who we are. There's nothing special in me that would make me a friend of God. It's because God in Christ has chosen me and made me his friend in Christ Jesus in spite of who I am. 
Then the implication, uh, imputation of Christ's righteousness. We've already read this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That double imputation. Our sin credited to Christ's account. He suffered the guilt that I deserve to suffer. And Christ's righteousness credited to my account. That's what God has done for us in this de- declaration of justification. And then that leads us to the last link in this chain, the link of glorification. Glorified. Read verse 30 with me once again in Romans chapter 8. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And this comes from the Greek word doxadzo, uh, which means glory. And it has to do with, in a general way, beauty or, or bliss uh, in a sense. But in the application that Paul is making in this text, I think it has to do with the idea of our ultimately being totally conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. We will share in, if you will, the glory of Christ when he comes again. Now, I look at myself in the mirror, right? I look at the way I live my life, and my heart is bent on doing what God wants me to do. My heart is bent on being obedient to him, but I see how I stumble over and over again. Every day in my life. So I know that I have not reached this place of glorification. But in the mind of the divine, God has said to you and to me, those who are in Christ Jesus, I see you in this moment as you will be. You are glorified. Isn't that amazing? That's how God sees you. So when the devil whispers in your ear or when people around you begin to talk or shout at you about how wretched you are, you say, amen, I am the wretch that you claim me to be. But in the sight of my savior, in the sight of my father, I am glorified, right? And that's where we got to live. That's the only way that we can overcome the downs, the valleys in life is to understand that in spite of the valley, in spite of the failure in my life, that God the Father sees me as glorified. And one day what he sees me and has declared me to be will become a reality when Christ Jesus comes again at the consummation of the age. Now one aspect of this glorification it is a spiritual concept, but there's also a physical aspect to it as well. Because our inner man has been changed, right? We talked about that. The, the, the old man is dead. We have been renewed on the inner, uh, in the inner man. We've given, been given a brand new heart. But Paul made it very clear in Romans chapter 7 that we have a problem. Like I said in Sunday school, one of my problems is I got about 300 pounds of flesh I drag around with me every day, right? And that's a problem for me because that flesh doesn't want the things of God. It wants the things of this world, 
right? He wants to follow after the sinfulness of this world. So my body has not yet been brought into compliance like it should as my soul is. My body does not match the glorification that God has done inside on the inner man. And that is that will not take place until Christ comes again. Uh, you, you may not have time to turn there, but just uh, mark down 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 51. You ought to read all of 1 Corinthians, and in particular 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, it is the chapter that deals with the resurrection of the saints. And just this one verse, look at what Paul says. This is the heart of this idea of resurrection. The resurrection takes place. That's why in 1 Thessalonians, it talks about us all being changed, whether we're living or dead, right? Everyone's going to be changed. Here in 1 Corinthians, everyone's going to be changed, whether living or dead. Why? Because all of us, all of our bodies have to be different if we're going to enter into eternity. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, for this perishable body, this immortal body, must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. So at least one aspect of this glorification that's going to take place is that when Christ comes again, if I'm still living, he's going to change my body in, a, in, the, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. And if I'm dead, then he's going to give me a brand new body when he raises me from the dead. And just as an aside, a lot of people, you know, have a problem with the issue of uh, whether or not people ought to be cremated or, or those kinds of things. I don't know if you've ever talked about that or thought about that. And some people say, how's, how in the world is the Lord going to bring back a new body or recreate this body if we were cremated? Well, how's he going to do it if somebody was cast into the sea and eaten by the sharks? How's he going to do it when people were set on fire in, in, in certain places when that was part of their custom of burning, of, of burying people? How's he going to do it before we really had the, the concept of em, em, embalming down like we do, right? And they just buried them in the dirt, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, right? Eventually, you just disintegrate. But I don't know about you, but if you've seen on TV where they exhume bodies, but it ain't a whole lot left after so many years, even with embalming, are they? God made this body from the beginning, and he can recreate or remake this body in the end. It's not going to be a problem for him, okay? Don't worry about those kinds of things because God can speak it and it'll be so, right? What you and I need to understand is that when that day comes, I will no longer drag this sinful flesh with me. It'll be redeemed just like my soul has been redeemed. And in that moment, not only am I not under the penalty of sin, I won't be under the pressure of sin, I won't even be in the presence of sin anymore because God will redeem me totally and I will share in the glory and the righteousness of God like I've never seen it before. God has promised and decreed that we will be glorified. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. In other words, we don't really see and understand the full glory of the Lord. We get a glimpse of it, but we don't capture the whole beauty of the glory of the Lord. And being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is uh, the Spirit. So God is ultimately working in us to bring us to this place, which will take place at the culmination of the age, that we will share in the glory of God in total uh, the total, the totality of our redemption. Second Corinthians uh, four seventeen. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. 
we, we can't even behold, we can't even begin to grasp what it means to be glorified by God. And what these, you know, what Paul's already told us in Romans chapter 8 mirrors what he said here in Corinthians, right? That these momentary afflictions cannot compare to what it is that God is going to do at the consummation of the age when we are glorified once and for all. But you and I have to get to this place that we live in light of the fact that I am already glorified in the Father's eyes. And don't let our failure. Does that mean we don't need to think about our sinfulness? I think, I, I, I don't know when, when I've said it before, but I, I know I've said it. I think the mark of a true, maybe it was at the beginning of this service, right? The mark of a true mature believer, not only is that we trust God in the sufferings, but that we are people who continually repent. Not so that we can get saved over and over again, because that's a done deal, right? But I think the mark of true mature believer is that I see the acute nature of my sinfulness in a way that I've never seen it before. And the more I walk with the Lord, the more I understand, as the Apostle Paul did, that I am the chief of sinners. And I come before the Lord and every little thing in my life that is sinful, I bring before the Lord and say, Lord, I see it. I agree with you. That is sinfulness in my life. And I need your help to change me so that I don't live like that. I don't act like that. I don't talk like that anymore. It's this constant growing awareness of our failures and our celebrating that in Christ we have overcome, right? And so God promised us that he will complete in us what he has started. And so I'll leave you with one uh, last set of, of scriptures, John 17. This is, Jesus is, this, this is the Lord's Prayer, right? John 17. And he says, beginning in verse 17, we'll read verse 17, then 21 through 24. Because this aspect of glorification means that we will to be totally and completely sanctified in that day. And the Lord says, sanctify them in the truth. And then he says, your word is truth. Now, not to preach another sermon on sanctification, but you and I need to understand the ramification of that statement. What is one of the primary tools that God uses for sanctification in our life? Yes, the person of the Holy Spirit but it's the truth of God's word, right? What does the Spirit do? The Spirit leads us into all truth. If we want to be a sanctified people and grow in our sanctification in this time and space in which we live, in this progressive state of sanctification we're in, we must be people of the book. Not just on Sunday, not just on Wednesday. Every day of our life, we need to feast on the manna of the book of God, the, the Bible, so that God can use that truth to sanctify the inner man. So he says, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And we don't understand the, we don't understand the, the intricacies of what it means that the Son and the Father are one. And that's what he's calling us to be. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that, they have, that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them. Don't miss that. Isn't that what Paul has just told us in Romans chapter 8? 
God has decreed us to be glorified. And Jesus has confirmed that, that this glory by which God the Father had glorified God the Son, that that glory has been given to his children, that they may be one even as we are one. So this glory has some aspect of being unified with the Father and the Son and the Spirit in a way that we have not yet comprehended, right? In I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Man, there's something that the Lord is trying to tell us about unification, isn't he? With the Father, with the Son, with the Spirit, but unification with one another. One body, one Lord, one Spirit. We are to be unified in our faith and unified in our purpose. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And this unity has to do with our demonstrating to the world that Christ is the Messiah. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. And what is Jesus saying to us? His prayer was, that God the Father would be true to the declaration that he's already made about us, that we are glorified. And that when Christ comes again, that we will see the fullness of the glory of God and we will realize the fullness of the glory of God in our own lives. And that is a day that I long for, a day that I, that I hope that the Lord will expedite, right? But at the same moment, I know that there are people who are lost in this world, and if the Lord comes tonight, there are going to be a whole lot of people that die and go to hell. So, Lord, as much as I want to see that fulfillment of the glorification in my life, thank you for waiting one more day for that. Thank you for allowing another person to come to faith in Christ today. And help me, Lord, in the meantime, live in such a way to represent this unified aspect of what it means to be a follower of Christ so that I show to the world without a shadow of a doubt they have no excuse when they see the way I live that you are the one whom God sent to reconcile the world to himself. Believers, I hope that you will leave here today as we finish up this golden chain understanding that salvation has absolutely nothing to do with what you have done. Because all you have done is the same that I have done. Sinfulness, rebellion. I am guilty before God. Salvation is all of what God has done in Christ Jesus. And anyone who will believe in Jesus Christ can be a partaker of the glorious results of that saving faith. We will be justified. We will be glorified. We will be conformed to the image of Christ. And we've got to live in light of that hope, right? And we've got to live in light of that assurance that God has saved us. And Paul's going to tell us at the end of this thing, who can separate us from the love of God? 
I think going all the way back to Romans chapter 8 and uh, verse 29, those whom he foreknew. Who can separate us from that kind of love? Well, no one can. You can't and I can't. No one in this world, nothing can. Because God has saved us and God will keep us to the end. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for this time that you've given us to be in your house and in your word. And I ask, Lord, that as we go into this few moments of invitation, that if there's someone who is not saved today, that today you will call them to yourself with that effectual calling and they will come to faith in Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are believers in Christ Jesus, that Lord, you will prompt us and prick our hearts to live in such a way that the world will know without a shadow of a doubt that you are our savior and that you are the hope for all of this world. And Father, you have your way and your will in these moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.